0: back in the studio we've got a new desk
1: new new revamped improved new and improved studio stepping up in the world
0: yeah we're, this is on this is like setup number four or five and just as many episodes basically yeah, maybe
1: maybe this one will last we'll see yeah
0: my wife gave us uh, her desk one well, didn't give us let us borrow it for yeah. the summer she gave from it her classroom this. so she doesn't yeah, technically she, gave she just us. gave this to us yeah thank you honey yeah well, we want to welcome you back to the show. We're the Reformed Informants. This is a podcast devoted to biblical exposition, systematic theology, and practical application for the good of the church. I'm Lance Burroughs along with TJ Darty and we're the Reformed Informants. And we are back in our bibliology study. Yeah. Yeah, this is uh this is good stuff. The uh,
1: the 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 bibliology series that we're starting off with. Exciting stuff.
0: Yeah, so I think this is um This is our third uh, episode in our Bibliology series, and today uh, we're going to spend a majority of the time looking at uh, two different uh, particulars or two different aspects of uh, Bibliology, and those two things would be inspiration and inerrancy. Inspiration and inerrancy, and before we get into those, we want to somewhat recap or review what we talked about previously again i i do think it would be good especially in these series to go back and start in the first episode of the series that way you can yeah follow along with us as we build and progress through these different doctrines and through these uh different categories well yeah
1: because we're we're doing this in a systematic way right like we are uh considering how to build a bibliology, uh a doctrine of the bible and we aren't doing it haphazardly, but we're doing it logically and in a, a a particular order for a reason. And so we began right with the uh study of revelation. Um and what did we look at in our our episode uh, regarding revelation?
0: Yeah, the two things we focused on were general revelation and uh special revelation. So, well, we kind of dove into um, both of those um, I I don't know, bird's eye view briefly, I feel like. There's a lot more that we could have said um, but we wanted to talk about God revealing himself generally to all people through Mm -hmm. general revelation, creation, conscience, and the third one that you added History. Yeah, would be history and then secondly we looked at special revelation which we said
1: Well, most pronounced is in the person of Christ but in um studying theology, it would be in the Word of God, which is the scriptures, which is how we ended up where we are now
0: right so so now we 're moving into inspiration so t j how do we connect revelation to inspiration what 's the connecting point there why why inspiration next?
1: yeah, well, when you think about revelation and especially as we defined it, this is the god's revealing himself or the communication of himself. Uh, to humanity, but inspiration gives us a way to preserve that revelation in written form. So it is taking God's revelation in a way that makes it accessible and meaningful um, in a way that preserves it over the course of time. Uh, Because, obviously, Jesus is no longer walking on the earth, right? So he was the full manifestation of who God is, but now, through the word of God, God has maintained that revelation um, on the earth in that communication to humanity.
0: Right. 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 So God has determined to reveal himself right. with the intent of revealing himself in words yes. that we would essentially bring to paper yeah. throughout the centuries through particular people is what we're yeah. going to get at through the rest of the bibliology. Yeah. And series you, I mean, here. You,
1: could, you can even go all the way back to to Moses um, back in, in Exodus 31, and the first thing that God does in revealing himself uh, to those people is he writes the Ten Commandments on a tablet with the fin- with his own finger. Yeah, right? absolutely. Like, it it is in written form. With the finger form. of God. With, with the finger of God in written form. So this is how God has chosen to preserve his word um, so that it might um, be able to be communicated throughout the generations. Um, but but we use this term, inspiration. Inspiration. Um, and what what do we mean when we talk about biblical inspiration? What is what? How would you define it? Give us give us some some uh, yeah, context for this. Well,
0: to quote from MacArthur's Biblical Doctrines, he says that inspiration is the process of divine causation behind the authorship of Scripture. So we're we're dealing with Scripture here, okay? And it refers to the direct act of God on the human author that resulted in the creation of perfectly written. Revelation.
1: Okay, so there's revelation again, like this is our connection. Um, and inspiration then is the act by which God um, moves through the human author to create the Word of God as we have it today. Is that, would you say yeah. that's fair? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I love John Frame's uh, definition of this. I, I absolutely love it. He, he calls it inspiration the divine act uh, that creates an identity between a divine word and a human word. I mean, isn't that just so so poetic right? Oh like, it's beautiful. Like, like there's it's human language. It, it's human communication. Um, it's written by human beings in human form, but it is connected to God's purposes. So it's a, a it's a fusion between a divine word and the human word. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and that is so critical for us to see and we're going to talk about that uh, divine authorship. Uh, as well. Speaking of that, uh, we, we speak of of God acting in a way um, through human agents to accomplish the written form of the revelation. But which person of the Godhead or who, who would we say then accomplishes the means of inspiration?
0: Yeah, when we're talking about inspiration, we're talking about the Holy Spirit.
1: OK, so this is a part of the work of the spirit of God. Absolutely. Okay. And reformed people.
0: Love the Holy Spirit. That's right. Yeah, John Calvin was actually called the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of all people, right? Right, right. Yeah, we, so we would say the Holy Spirit is the one that is accomplishing inspiration.
1: Yes. So when we speak of God, uh, generally when we refer to Revelation, we uh, just so you guys are clear that we mean God, the Holy Spirit, um, is is inspiring, is moving in the hearts of men to communicate uh, that divine re- revelation. So so we've spoken then of, of the Spirit working with humanity. So I, I think it's uh, it, it's important to, to highlight this, that inspiration means that there is a dual authorship of Scripture. Um, what does that okay. mean? Can you unpack that? Okay, so a, a dual authorship. So we're talking,
0: we've got a divine act, but we also have, Humanity involved. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when we say dual authorship, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, but we're also talking about the biblical authors or, or, okay. or the writers of the biblical documents.
1: So, so who wrote the Bible, Lance? Did God write the Bible or did man write the Bible?
0: Well, who lives your Christian life? Mm. Is it you or the Holy Spirit? Right. Yeah. Well, we, we come across throughout Scripture what we would call divine tensions. Where we yeah. we where we have. Divine work taking place while we also have humanity working as well. So again, dual authorship, we would say that it's organic in the fact that, yes, it is directly from the Holy Spirit. It is inspired words of God, but it's also using human authors um, and their personalities and their vocab and their style and historical context and all of those things to get those words. In written form.
1: Okay, so you would say then that when Paul writes a letter, or when um, Moses has recorded the early histories of of Israel, or when David writes a psalm, you would say that all of those men still maintain their personality. Absolutely. Okay, so they are still writing the words. Absolutely. But still, you would say every word is inspired. Sure. Okay. Okay.
0: I, I think the text is clear on that, and I've, I've had the same question um for my students the last few years as we've worked through the book of Romans well, who wrote the book of Romans <laughs> well it's it's Paul and he makes that clear in chapter one verse one yes right paul yes. slave of Christ right um but it's also the spirit of God and um that's what you see running through every page of scripture that the Holy Spirit and the the author the the human writer are are working together. Yeah, in um, inspiration.
1: Yeah, so so if in a classical uh, systematic theology, the definition or the term that would be used to identify this um, understanding of inspiration. Because by the way, um, worth noting, there are a variety of theories, right, of how inspiration takes place, and we're gonna uh, talk about what inspiration is not um, here in just a second, but. What, what would we call this? Well, we would say that this is uh, the verbal plenary understanding of inspiration. And what that means is those two words, verbal, meaning words. So not just thoughts, not ideas, but the actual literal words in the original languages. Um, verbal plenary, plenary means full. So in other words, the entire vocabulary of the scripture has been inspired By the Holy Spirit of God.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And we mean that down to every jot and tittle as Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount. And we mean that to the extent of even the tenses of words. Jesus says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob.
1: That's exactly right he
0: is uh, that, that that tense is absolutely critical to the point that he's trying to make there
1: and and this is this is the value and i don't believe that every single person is called to do this but this is the value of those men who have labored uh, in so intensely to understand the original languages and to understand the grammar of the original languages like there are um, certain syntactical phrases that are used in the new testament especially um where nuances and exactness is communicated even so subtly as to using what type of tense or what type of, of uh, part of speech that signals something that goes beyond the surface. Uh, we believe that the Spirit of God has moved in such a way um, that these all of, as you mentioned, Lance, all, every jot and tittle, every single um, component of the written Text has been inspired, yeah, and it's absolutely. there for a reason,
0: okay, so I mean th- this is so we're saying every tiny detail is it possible for God to do that without making somebody robotic mm. or mechanical, or or should we look at inspiration to the degree of well Paul must have been robotic, right God must right. have made him uh, a mechanical being during the time that he was writing, right is, is that how we want to view? inspiration Uh,
1: no um and i'm very confident to say that right unequivocally no um we don't hold to a dictation theory as as systematicians have identified um in in other words we would not say that paul sits down to write. he gets his his parchment and his quill and his eyes roll back in his head and he just kind of whatever his hand does he has no that that's first of all that's very Um, it's very clear just from a cursory reading of Scripture. Sure. Right? Like, you just read through the New Testament and you sense personality. I mean, what does Paul say at the beginning of 1 Corinthians? I'm thankful that I didn't baptize anyone except for Gaius. You know, like... Right. he, he, He is speaking... Just like your buddy Paul down you know when he rolled into town a couple of years before right you know he, his personality shows up so just the cursory reading of scripture um, indicates that there is different personality but then even in a more um, academic sense you can look at the vocabulary uh, especially in the in the original languages and you can look at um, there are distinctions there are um, style um, differences between these different um, a biblical authors. So you sure. have you have that distinction between them already.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You read the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, it, it is going to be a different style um, than reading Romans or mm-hmm. Galatians. Mm-hmm. But we're saying even within those styles that it's still the inspired Word of God using the personalities and the intelligence That's of right. those particular writers.
1: Yes. But at the same time, So that's one extreme, right, where you go all the way to the point of saying they don't have any personality. The the other extreme might be that these men have just been given some kind of artistic gift, right? Like that this is really, really that they're really just these special writers. Like you've got these uh, geniuses throughout all the ages, and this just happens to be the age where we had some really good um, writers who put together the biblical canon just because they're gifted.
0: Right. Right? Yeah, I think, again, just reading through the New Testament as an example, we come across men um, that are tax collectors, that are fishermen, that are tent makers, that don't necessarily, not all of them, but a majority of them don't have the background of being highly educated. Right. Um, now, I think we could, on the flip side of that, we would say that Paul was a mm-hmm. intelligent man as far mm-hmm. as education was concerned. But generally speaking, that wasn't the background. That wasn't the resume. We're talking about ordinary people That's right. uh, that are r- writing these documents.
1: That's exactly right. So, So uh, to kind of summarize this, we believe the... Spirit of God has moved in a way that he communicates through the means of men with their personalities, their vocabulary, their intelligence, their context, their um, their ordinary language. And he has chosen to communicate through them to preserve that revelation of God. Right. And right? well, we believe that because that's what the scripture says. That was going to be my next question. How do you where are you, where are you coming from on this? Like yeah. we, we've got theories, but wh- how do we back this up? Where are we going to build our case Systematically from Scripture,
0: right? So we've we've defined it. So now, if we're looking at texts to build support for what we've just said, yeah, of, of course we have them. If you and I think the classic text is going to be Second Peter chapter yes. one, yes, uh, verses twenty and twenty-one. Uh, it says that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Uh, we're not coming up with this stuff mm-hmm. uh, out, out of nowhere. This isn't just falling from the sky. Um, And then enlightening them um, to write. That's right. Verse 21 goes on. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, Mm. but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. There Um, there it is. I mean, you see see both aspects of it here. And the idea behind moved by the Holy Spirit is if we're alive in the ancient world and we're sailing from continent to continent, right? Mm-hmm. The idea behind is that we have moved our sails up to be caught by the wind, and, this, and the wind is moving the ship along. That, that's mm-hmm. the idea here. You mm-hmm. see both working on the ship and then the wind moving uh, that ship along.
1: Yeah, uh, and the the other classic text would be 2 Timothy 3, um, where all Scripture is breathed out by God, like this... Idea that all of Scripture must have a divine um, origin, in a in the sense that it is breathed out, is a very unique uh, Greek expression, um, which is why you might have different um, translations of that phrase. But it is breathed out by God, um, which suggests again that the Word of God comes from God Himself. um, But again, we see when you take second Timothy three and you put it next to second Peter one, you see human agency, divine, um, origin and a dual authorship of the text between those two. Right. Right.
0: right. Okay. And I, yeah, I think the best example of the affirmation of the inspiration of scripture would be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Funny. how. Okay. That so, uh, l- l- let's talk about Jesus's view of, um, inspiration. Um, in in terms of, did he believe in inspiration? And Jesus, at this point, would only be dealing with the Old Testament text. So how was Jesus um, essentially uh, asserting himself in regards to inspiration of Old Testament text?
1: Well, we've mentioned before, maybe we should do a separate episode on this sometime, but the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus is, is constantly saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you and what he is doing is he is um, addressing the Pharisees in particular. That's who he, his main focus is in that sermon. Um, but he's, he's addressing their understanding and their view of the scripture um, because the Pharisees kind of served as the gatekeepers, right? Like they were the ones who um, determined the understanding of the Old Testament. Well, Jesus, in all of those cases, he always corrects their interpretations or he he says you have added tradition that needs to be removed um, but he never once says that you are referring to this document and it is not from god Right? i, lo- right? I love that right
0: he, he you're absolutely right he never says oh wait wait a minute you've got the wrong text oh right. wait a minute you've got right. the wrong book hey
1: you're missing something let me show you something else no no, no, no. you're right not he, once never
0: yeah, so the, the the issue that he addresses is people reading the scripture, interpreting the scripture incorrectly, and teaching the scripture incorrectly.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean
0: that that that, that is clear all throughout right. the Gospels. Again, Sermon on the Mount, like you had mentioned, and and many other times, uh, when the interpretation of the text had been so abused that Jesus is literally making a one eighty de- that's right you know, one hundred eighty degree uh, turn on the exegesis of that passage.
1: Right, so we've referenced several passages in the New Testament. Uh, I think that they speak fairly clearly on the subject. But Second Peter one, Second Timothy three, uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, all of them refer to Scripture. Which at that point, we, which Testament are they referring to?
0: Yeah, right there, they're only f- referring to the Hebrew Scripture, the Old Testament.
1: Okay, so we can we can confidently, I think, at this point, say that the Old Testament is inspired. But how do we deal with the New Testament? Like, does the New Testament speak about itself, and how do we build a case for that? Because the New Testament hasn't been completed. Is it circular reasoning? Is it, right. how, how do we deal with that?
0: Yeah. Yeah, the Old Testament, I think you can look at even internal evidence within the Old Testament that they were accepting the writings of the prophets. That's right. right? Mm-hmm. Well, when you get to the New Testament, that same idea is there. You, you work your way through the New Testament documents, and you will find... That in those documents, there is affirmation of other New Testament documents or other New Testament books from the New Testament writers. And we're talking about this happening very quickly after the time of Jesus. Yes. We're, We're not talking about affirmation in the second and third century. We're literally talking about the first century New Testament documents referring to one another. Now, that that doesn't happen on every page of the New Testament, but it does happen enough to indicate to us that the first century was already accepting other books outside of the Old Testament— as scripture, yeah, ultimately building is what what we would call the New Testament. That's right. So where where would you take us then?
1: Yeah, when you're mentioning that, the first place I think of is Second Peter chapter three. Um, we, we mentioned Second Peter one, but a little bit later, as as Peter is closing out um, the book, he says in second three Second uh, Peter three, uh, verse fifteen, he says uh, that we should count the patience of the, our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. So again, as Lance just mentioned, there you are seeing Peter recognizing um, Paul's authorship, um, but also mentioning the wisdom that has been given to him. We would argue is that is a reference to the divine wisdom or inspiration. And he goes on to say, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, and that there are some things that are hard to understand. Right, but he still recognizes and acknowledges that Peter, uh, excuse me, that Paul is writing uh, scripture because he goes on to say, "Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction." Here's the key phrase: "As they do other scriptures." Right. So, so by no, <laughs>
0: that verse is loaded. It, 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 words, that little text is loaded. Tons right of there. stuff
1: in there. But I, I hope you caught that 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 the just as Paul has written to you, um, in in all of his letters. Other people misunderstand them and twist them around just like they do other scriptures. So he is wow. equivocating, right, Paul's writing with the Old Testament, saying that they are of the same uh, kind, that they are both authoritative. Right. Um, right. And then the other text um, that comes to mind is 1 Timothy 5. Um, uh, Paul here has a, a quote. He says, "You For the scripture says, and then he says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, quoting Deuteronomy 25, and the lab- the laborer deserves his wages, quoting Luke 10. So you have two um, texts from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and Paul lumps them together and says the Scripture says these things. So right. again, recognizing the Old and New Testament, both inspired documents, both written by the same uh, divine author, giving it cohesion, but distinct in their authors from the human side. Right. right?
0: I, yeah. I mean, these are, again, these are so foundational. Just borrowing from the language that Peter and Paul use here, they are affirming what has been written by Peter referring to Paul mm-hmm. and Paul referring to Luke. They are calling it scripture, yeah. which is placing it on equal authority with what was previously called scripture, which would be the Old Testament. So they understand. That what they are talking about is God breathed. Yeah, and uh, that's a, that's
1: a big deal. Think about what the the sacred texts of the Old Testament, which we will we'll have a separate episode uh, coming up real soon on canonization. But they viewed that their sacred text as as that sacred. It was God speaking. So they were. Paul is not going to equate. Um, Luke's writing with the Old Testament scriptures unless it is divinely inspired, right? right? Like that's a big big deal.
0: And these guys gave their life that's obviously right. for uh, uh the word of God. I think it I think it was Josephus who talks about at least generally speaking Jews regarding uh, their scriptures referring to the Old Testament that, that they were willing they, they were willing to die mm. for the word of God. And which would also be true of the apostles and the early Christians yes. in, in the first century. But I, I mean, we we can think about people throughout church history, and one that always comes to mind, mainly because we're reading from a English translation of the New Testament, would mm. would be guys like John Rogers and William Tyndale, mm-hmm. Tyndale who mm-hmm. who gave their life for God's word, the preservation of God's word. No, it's, it's yeah. just it's so encouraging.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, okay, so we've talked about divine inspiration. We've talked about God preserving his revelation in written form. And that he has moved through these human authors so that he might communicate that. So the next related doctrine... Within bibliology is the concept of inerrancy. So here's my question. Ooh, let's if, go. This if, is so good. Is, this is If the Bible has been inspired by God, can it contain error? Right. Does it contain errors? Lance, I'm holding a Bible in my hand. Can I trust it? Are there errors in there? I think that's a legitimate question. I yeah. think it's a question that
0: has to be asked.
1: Yeah, we would be doing a disservice if we didn't ask that question. Right. If we just took this on blind assumption, we're, we're foolish. Right. right?
0: I, we we have to tackle this because right. that is a common question. I think, it, I think it's becoming a more common question, even in the church, unfortunately, because mm-hmm. I don't think that there is an absolute confidence in the inerrancy of Scripture. Yeah. But definitely outside the realm of uh, evangelical Christianity, people are constantly commenting on, the Bible and oh, it definitely has heirs. right? But we would re- we would flat out reject that, a hundred percent. And and that's right. what, essentially what we're trying to get into when we talk about inerrancy. So, if God has revealed Himself and His words have been documented, I would absolutely affirm that those original autographs by every individual writer of Scripture wrote. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and what they wrote is completely without any errors. Okay.
1: I I agree with you, but for the sake of argument, what do you mean when you say the original autographs? What is What does that mean, and why did you include that in your definition as opposed to leaving that phrase out?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's where there's a lot of confusion okay. when people talk about inerrancy. When we talk about inerrancy, we're talking about the original documents, the, the original autographs, um, the autographic text. When we're saying that Paul sat down to write the book of Second Timothy, he's writing that just a few weeks before he dies, he, probably in the Mamertine prison. Mm-hmm. But when he's writing that final document to Timothy, when he he essentially signs his name at the end of that document mm-hmm. that document is the authorized final draft that paul is giving timothy we are saying that that is the autographic text now look hypothetically let's just say that he had a couple rough drafts mm-hmm. that he was writing to timothy and he's working through those rough drafts he's adding and subtracting and deleting right. backspacing right. right look that, that that's fine we're talking about the final authorized document that he sends out, the same way w- in your dissertation that right. you will turn in when it... When it, when it months? <laughs> not <soon. laughs> months, not okay, soon. Okay, not soon. Yeah, next year. But you're going to work your way through rough drafts, you're going to revise, et cetera, et cetera. When you finally submit that bad boy... That's the one. That That is the one. Right. So we're saying whenever an Old Testament or a New Testament author finalizes, stamps, puts his final authority on that, that's...
1: Yeah, that's what we're saying is the
0: one that's inerrant.
1: Okay, and I think that's an important distinction because we actually don't have any of those original autographs, right? right? We only have copies, and we're um, okay with that. And we we're are okay not freaking with that. Out. That's uh, why not? What? Why? Why don't we have the originals? And is that why is that not a problem for us?
0: Yeah, we we don't have the originals. Clearly, they were lost or destroyed at yeah. some point. They're right? old. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> old documents, right. and we're, we're okay with that uh, because we have got we we have confidence in the God that we serve and That's the right. God of the Scripture. Again, right. all of these aspects of systematic theology are tied together, and this would go all the way back to the character and nature of God.
1: Right. So, I think it's actually you could you could make the argument that inerrancy is actually a corollary, right, of the idea of inspiration, that God has inspired his His word to be written in such a way. It, if it's coming from the mouth of God, if it's been breathed out by God, it can't contain errors. Right. It absolutely can't.
0: Well, just to remember back to something that you said when you filled in oh, as great. a little guest speaker <laughs> in one of yeah, my classes. There's no telling what I said. Last year. Well, you said that scripture is a reflection of the character of God. Yeah. And I think that yeah. goes along with what you
1: yeah exactly i mean it it, because it has been inspired because as you said it it is from god himself and that we have confidence in that god these documents cannot contain air so i think we can agree that the original autographs have to be inerrant. Okay, they have to be.
0: Yeah, expound on the the autographic text a little bit more. Uh, okay, I, I want to hear your input, your thoughts, your understanding of that.
1: Yeah, um, I, I would affirm what you just said. Um, I, I think. I think also we need to we need to keep in mind that the original languages are in play here, okay. right? So the when Paul wrote in Koine Greek. Paul was writing in a way, and the Spirit was inspiring him in a way, that those words communicated through that particular language are um, inerrant in that document, like those words themselves. Now, you're going to have copyists that, because the Word of God is so important and so prevalent, um, copies are made. They're trying to preserve this Word. And so these copyists who, by the way, we can't imagine that. Today, we just go to the copy machine or just print another. Yeah. F- you know, the, the Making
0: an error is no big deal. Not a problem. Because you can hit delete. Right.
1: They, they they didn't have that option, and they are handwriting meticulously with incredible detail and precision. And with 99.9% accuracy, they copy everything over exactly on in written form. Now, occasionally, okay. you'll have a handful of documents that have a a different word order, or this maybe word... Maybe a misspelled word. Maybe this word is misspelled. Maybe these two letters are transposed, which makes a difference in how you might pronounce it or the nuance or, you know, inflection of a meaning or something of that nature. So you have some of those um, inconsistencies in the copies. But that does not take away from the inerrancy attached to the autograph. Right, absolutely. Right?
0: That That... When we're talking about the copying and the preservation of the Scripture uh, generation to generation, we understand that the scribes or the copyists, we we understand that there was a margin of error that they could display, that they may
1: misspell a word, flip a word order. Because they're not divinely inspired in copying. Exactly. So we're
0: not saying those manuscripts are divinely inspired. Mm -hmm. We're not saying those manuscripts or those copies are inerrant. We are saying the original autographic text is, right. however.
1: Right, and I think that's really important, um, and it does not jeopardize or um, in any way endanger the doctrine of inerrancy to suggest that. In fact, I would argue that this is, now, of course, from the reform perspective, we see God's hand orchestrating, moving, sovereignly decreeing all of creation, all that happens, but I would say that it's no accident that we don't have the actual autographs yeah why well i i think if i'm holding um the original documentation from the hand of paul i'm going to be prone to idolatry sure right like the word of god can become in essence a replacement of god right if we're not careful right right even in systematic theology we have the temptation you and i i mean look at the bookshelves and all the i mean we have the temptation to learn about god but not to worship god himself
0: yeah i've got a I think I've got a a four volume, four or six volume commentary on the Psalms by Spurgeon. Mm-hmm. It's a second edition from the 1800s, and I'm yeah, I'm jacked yeah. about having that. Right.
1: It's hard. It's hard to even pull that off the yeah, shelf. But what
0: if I had the original letter to the Romans right Ooh, here?
1: Exactly. I mean, the, the the we would
0: not be videoing this podcast. <laughs> that's <then. laughs> that's the truth.
1: Um. So I I think that that is actually to our benefit that we don't have the exact. Autographs in their exact form, but we know with absolute certainty. And the the numbers on this are absurd. Most um, ancient documents, anything that we have from from ancient times, we have one copy, maybe two. Uh, I think one of the more extreme cases, you have ten. Right. We we have over five thousand. In in just the New Testament alone. Right. So we are very confident in what we have here. And the inconsistencies, this is also another point, the grammar or the misspelling or the deletion of a a line because a copyist made a mistake never, ever, ever occurs in any controversial or significant doctrinal statement. Right. 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 So I'm I'm not dealing with a text that... That misses the resurrection, <laughs> right? Like, I don't have a copy that says, "Ooh, the last four chapters of the Gospel of Matthew aren't here," so right. the crucifixion and resurrection are gone. Well, if I'm not we, dealing with that.
0: Yeah, if if we were willing to step back and just look at documents from the ancient world or of antiquity, and we were to gather together all of the evidence, again, we're taking an unbiased approach in this illustration that I'm using here. Mm-hmm. We have more documents for the biblical text than any other documents in existence. In other words, you could argue unbiasedly that the Bible is the most trustworthy book because of the amount of copies and manuscripts and ancient ancient, uh, documents that we have. That's right, and and you,
1: higher criticism just, it, is, it is just true. That's right. That's not a evangelical perspective, like you said. Like th- this is just strictly literary criticism. If you're going to look at documentation from historical works, how do you weight them? Well, the one that has the astronomical number of of copies, that's the one that carries the most weight, right? And, and so you would, I would affirm yeah. that, yeah.
0: And, and and the problem again isn't. Um, <laughs> It not the amount of documents that we have for the reliability of it? The problem is that people just don't like what it says. That's right. That, that, That's that, exactly that, right. that. That is the issue. That's here. exactly right.
1: Okay, we we've we've dealt with this kind of on a a broad scale, but let's. I want to ask a question. Um, as we're kind of trying to wrap this up, let's think about inerrancy. Um, because here's what here's what I've experienced. I make the claims that I just did. You and I just had this conversation regarding inerrancy. And immediately what somebody wants to do is they want to try to find the hole. They're going to try to poke one hole because their thought is it's like a house of cards. Right. If I can take one of them out, the whole thing crumbles. So if you can prove one error in Scripture, then you can therefore dismiss all of Scripture right. Um I think that there's a, a problem with that thinking, but that's not the point because I believe the whole Bible, all the Bible is inerrant. So it doesn't really matter. Um, but let me, let me just ask, how do we deal with something very basic? Like if I have a couple of verses, um, perhaps documents, um, like the old Testament dealing with census data, um in Samuel versus Chronicles or if i'm if i've got documents in the gospels that say there was one witness and another one says there's two how do i what do i do with that if they if they seem to contradict one another does that not prove that the bible contains an error in one of those two accounts
0: right yeah well i th- i think at least on those apparent contradictions those ones that seem to pop up on the surface all of those have been harmonized there's explanations uh for Um, every single one of those contradictions, uh, whether or not you're talking about the number of angels that appear at Mm -hmm. this event or Mm -hmm. the number of angels that appear um, according to Mark's gospel or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Maybe one author had a specific emphasis on just the angel that was talking. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I I mean, another example that I always think of, uh, not in relation to the Old Testament ones that you just brought up. I'll let you explain those here. (laughs) Um, Thanks. But in Mark chapter uh, 16, when he is uh, documenting um, the Sunday morning of the resurrection, he says when the sun was rising. Well, I mean, we know now that the sun's not actually Uh, rising. Right. Right. But again, that. This is Mark's perspective. This is this is what he sees and understands um, taking place that particular that's, morning.
1: That's a really good point.
0: That goes along with what we back with what we said with inspiration. It's not mechanical. It's, it's not robotic. F- he, he's writing as he's experiencing what he
1: sees. That's a re- that's a really good point to bring up because I love it when TJ tells me I've got a good. No, morning. that was Man, out, that's go. outstanding. That's <laughs> that's. Uh, I, you're exactly. I mean, that's so good because we as we move along in scientific data, we would say, of course, the sun does not rise um, rather the rotation of the earth on the axis and the earth. But that's not That's What is Mark doing? He's not writing a scientific book. Right. Um, and I think that's such an important thing for us to understand that this is when we speak of inerrancy, we're not saying that every minute detail is precise in the way that we might expect a factual um, documentation to express it, right? So, like I'm, uh, for example, we talk about the feeding of the five thousand uh, in the Gospels. Well, the gospel writers say that there were five thousand men plus women and children, right? Well, do you think that if there were five thousand and two men there, that the whole thing is wrong? Well, of course not. They're they're speaking. They're, they're generalizing they're we, would do, we would do
0: that too in a, in a massive that's crowd. exactly right yeah, there's a few hundred people here right
1: we're, we're not they in the gospels they don't have a ticket booth where they are going through the turnstiles for the the big football game and so they have the exact uh, record of how many attended that particular day the point that the um, author is trying to communicate there is there are five thousand men plus women and children this is an absurdly large number to try to feed right. like that's you know what i'm saying so we have to understand you mentioned the harmonization with apparent contradictions but we also have to understand the intricate details that we might expect to find um, with exact scientific factual precision that's not their intended purpose right. and it does not jeopardize saying that the bible is inerrant right so i think that's that's really uh, significant um any any other thoughts on this before we switch over into the initiative and wrap this up
0: yeah, there's again. We could have went through yeah. scripture after yeah. scripture to talk about um, these issues, and I think of Psalm 119. I think of mm. Proverbs chapter 30, verse five, talking about the Word of God being pure, the Word right. of God being true. Right. Jesus telling us that the, the, the Word of God is truth. Thy word Thy is word truth. Is true. That he says, John in, in 17. John, yeah, ab- yeah, absolutely. Um, I think all of those weigh in and factor in and play into. Uh, the doctrine of uh, inspiration and the doctrine of inerrancy we're, we're, it's a reflection of who God is mm, uh, yeah. as you've said before
1: that's yeah, that's outstanding.
0: all right so to wrap up here yeah uh, getting into the initiative for this episode.
1: TJ, you want to start us off? Sure um, big takeaway the initiative for me today um, we can rely on the Bible. The Bible is reliable. when I pick up the Word of God, to to meditate, to study um, for devotion every morning. I know that it's reliable, that I can trust it because God has inspired every single word. Every single word has been inspired by God. And then uh, second and related to that kind of a corollary to that to say is that if the Bible is not inerrant, then we lose confidence in everything else, right, that the Bible says. But we know that because God has inspired it, because he has preserved it and kept it, that everything it says is true. And so I know that my faith stands on solid ground.
0: Yeah, that's good. And I I, I would just add to that, and we've already said it before, but the, the, Bible, it, the, the Bible is a reflection of God. Yeah, it, I think it, that's so it, good. The, the Bible is revealing the character of God. And if... Uh, the Bible was with errors in the original uh, autographic text, and then that tells us that there is an issue or an error in God's nature, mm-hmm. and that's just not what we see uh, across the revelation that, that He's given.
1: Uh, praise God for that. I don't even want to stop. This I don't episode. either. I, I, I,
0: don't, I don't even want to stop.
1: Yeah, I, it's amazing, man. I look up and realize we've been talking for way longer than than I realized. Yeah, you know, um, we'll pick it up next time. Absolutely. So if you're not doing so already, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and to our YouTube channel. Be sure to like us on Facebook at Reformed Informants and then follow us on Instagram and Twitter at r underscore informants.
0: If you have any questions or suggestions for topics of discussion, feel free to email us at reformedinformants at gmail.com. Thank you